There is power in the name of Jesus who can make the darkness tremble, who can cause peace to come. He is the Prince of Peace. Peace is not contingent upon the activities of the United Nations. It's not contingent upon policies within uh, the government of Ottawa. Peace comes from heaven. Peace is a substance that comes through the people of God. Father, we want to declare today that you and you alone have the power to subdue the dogs of war. You and you alone have the power to suppress ungodliness that leads to murder and strife and division and hatred and fear. So we say, Lord, let the sound of faith arise in this place today that goes out like atomic an atomic explosion of peace that subdues the works of darkness for miles and miles and miles in every direction. Father, for those of you that are watching online, bless you. Thanks for joining us. Those of you that are in the room, we're going to continue to worship God today. We are presenting ourselves before the King of Kings, before the Lord of the whole universe who has the nations in the palm of his hand. They are less than a drop in a bucket before him. And he has the necessary weaponry, the necessary resources to free and change the peoples, the nations, the languages, the tribes. Uh, So we turn to him today. We say, Lord, make us what we need to be today to be ambassadors of a kingdom without end. Can you say amen? Amen. Come on, let's stay with this. There's something that God wants to do in our hearts today. It's It's like he's breathing into a balloon, and the balloon is your way of thinking, your imagination, your ability to perceive what is possible. Let him breathe into that part of you and let it expand. Let it expand even more. He is the God of abundance. Let me throw at you some concepts from the scriptures. Israel walked in the wilderness for years upon years and the natural laws of erosion were suspended from their lives. Their shoes did not wear out. There was no barren among them. No one even had a hemorrhoid. They were able to conquer nations greater than them. Throughout the scripture, time was made disposable. As the very sundial turned back, As the sun stopped in the air, time stopped moving. Our God is a God who rules over every natural law. God, we invoke your name today. We say, Lord, raise up out of us a people that believe. We see in the New Testament 
that people were taken from one geographic place to another. They were translated without airplanes, without vehicles. They were just moved from one place to another. If it happens that governments are so oppressive that they bind us to our homes, refuse us the ability to take flights or to travel, I'm telling you there's nothing that will inhibit a generation of evangelists who understand the power of the kingdom of heaven. You will find yourself in a moment of prayer and then they immediately find yourself preaching the gospel in the streets of another nation. There is nothing. There is nothing. Come on. There is nothing that can stop our God. Oh, God, give us a sense of the possibilities today. We pray you are the God of abundance. So we say today, Lord of hosts, show us who you are. Father, we say, God, we know you are great. But Lord, give us grace to release your arm. You know, one of the great paradoxes of our faith is the supremacy of our God contrasted against the feebleness of the church. How do you reconcile these two things? A church that is despondent, faithless, weak, and broken, and a God who is so powerful. The effect of God in the world is not rest on the fact that He is powerful, but it rests on the, the ability of the people of God to believe. Our ability to believe, our willingness to believe, our preparedness to lay down and confront unbelief, fear in our lives will determine the faith that we have. That's why it says that the faith pleases God. Because as much faith as we have, we release unprecedented resources. So this is why our cry is, oh God, increase our capacity to believe. There's no limit to what he can do. There's only the limit to what we believe. We are the weak link. We are the narrow place. But that is going to change, and that is changing. And this is the promise that we have. So, Father, we say today, as we change our focus this morning and move on with our service, Lord, we are your workmanship, Father. Work on us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Can you say amen? amen. Hallelujah. As it happened, uh, the Lord was speaking to me all day yesterday. And uh, I, I wrote an article, for the most part. It's almost finished. And so I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to share on this because it's, it's strong in my heart. And uh, 
God, Lord, we just want to reach out to you. We say, Father, help us. Help us today in Jesus' name. Let me, let me share this as I begin. There are, there are two sides to the way that God speaks. The Bible says, Behold the goodness and the severity of the Lord. Behold the goodness and the severity of the Lord. There's promises and there's warnings. Right? There's promises and the war- there's warnings throughout the scripture. I mean, you can't miss it if you're reading the Bible. The promises are amazing, but they always come with conditions. And those conditions are always, you know, if you do this, if you say this, if you believe, if you, you know, I mean, Jesus said nothing's impossible to those that believe. And we think, all right. But then things don't happen and we blame God. <laughs> right? Because surely the, the error cannot be on our side. What? I'm the weak link? No. Tell me something true. So, so this is the reality that we face all the time. That we have amazing possibilities for good. And amazing possibilities for the alternate. There's a funny scene in a movie, uh, eventually, uh, I, I, I've shared it a couple of times, and I, I can't remember the name of the movie, but there's this guy, he's kind of the hero of the movie, and he's, he's trying to save this girl, but she's reluctant, she's not sure if she can trust him, and he's trying to c- communicate, listen, listen, you, you, you need to stay with me, otherwise you have no chance, and he goes, he goes with me, without me. With me, without me. With me, without me. And that sums up the whole Bible. That, that, that imagery sums up the entire truth of the promises and the warnings of Scripture that say, God is saying, with me, without me. And so when we were just hearing this Scripture about the Lord of hosts and what he did for David was not because he's the Lord of hosts, He is the Lord of hosts, and he can do that, but he has limited himself, limited himself to act through men, through the agency of men, through through the faith of men, through your ability, willingness to align with him. The measure of his greatness is manifested through what you give him. That's the reality. So if there's a, there are ups and downs, and I get so tired of this unbelieving chorus, and, you know, I expect it from the world. It just bothers me when I hear it in the church. You know, it's, it's this blaming God for the atrocities that are, that are, you know, come from the evil of men. And, and you know, why, why I can't serve a God who would allow this. You know, it's not God that allows. It's us. We permit we invoke, we release, we determine, we choose. Every day we're choosing. And so I want to talk about something today because I, I believe, and this is, this is, I like to say this is on the promise side, except it's not. <laughs> you know what I say? There are exhilarating possibilities in the scripture that we can lean into. And, uh, but here's the thing, there's, there's dire prognostications if a nation does not walk a certain way. 
And here, here's what I've discovered, is that there is this component in man where, A, we do not believe in the possibilities, but also we do not believe in the warnings. I mean, this is the reality of the Scripture. When the prophets came to Israel, and God being merciful, God being long-suffering, he left a gap between when he would visit them with destruction, and so he warned them. Prophets prophesied their whole lives almost, you know, years and years and years. And guess what the people interpret that as? Not true. Not going to happen. Things continue as they always have. Where is the promise of his coming? The despicable heart of unbelief says. So God's reluctance, God's mercy, God's love of suffering is twisted by the heart of unbelief to suggest, yeah, no, we're good. Not going to happen. Nothing. No flies on me, mate. Right? And so we need to, we need to, what is this thing that causes us to not, on the one hand, believe his promises, but not believe his warnings? As a culture, you may be sitting here and you think, well, yeah, but that's not me. I'm a believer. Okay. I believe that. I believe you are a believer. But I want you to understand there are increments of faith and there are increments that are much higher and much lower than what perhaps we've imagined. And I always like to challenge myself with this. When I think of How much do I actually believe I look at my life as compared to the heroes of faith and I think, am I releasing as much of God on the earth as they did? Is there as much provision? If if God has these eternal resources, I mean, there's no limit to what he can do. How much of that is presently flowing through my life? Because that is the actual measure of my faith. All right, accept that challenge, right? This is what this is about. We want to believe him more. We want to be vessels that release his presence on the earth. But if we don't believe that we can believe more than we can right now, we're not really even leaning into anything. We're self-satisfied. We're complacent. We're, we're part of the problem, really. So I want to, I want to talk about something. I call it a prescription for mass psychosis. Yeah. Subheading, the consequences of our thirst for drama. And you'll see how it relates. But I'll I'll come to this in a second. But we have a penchant for living in what is not real. There's something inside of us that there's an appetite for illusion. There's an appetite in us for make-believe for fantasy as a means. You know, think, well, what's wrong with a little fantasy? I'll tell you in a few minutes. And I'm not saying, well, we should never watch a, a, an unreal movie. I'm, I'm saying, I'm talking about the reality of what happens in the secret places of your heart. What you choose to believe is real and what you choose to deny is real will determine the reality that you apprehend or not. And so there is this leaning inside of us that affects that there's a there's an aggregate across the specter of a nation. So you look at the nation of Canada. What does Canada get from God? Who determines whose faith, whose faith 
determines what kind of blessing or not does Canada get. Or if you're in Rwanda or Uganda, how, what, where does God tabulate the faith? Does he tabulate the faith? Is, is, there a, is there an additional, is there a system where God assembles the faith and then he gives us according to our obedience or disobedience, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, it's, and it's very precise and it's very just. And that's a starting point for us. God is just in what he does. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about this, but I'm telling you, the reason why the West has been so blessed is not because of our intelligence, it's not because of our education, it's not because of our political system, it's not because we are more brilliant than other nations, it's not because we're not barbarians, it's not because we are more loving, more sensible, more kind, more just, more, more objective. It's not because any of those things. If a nation experiences any of the goodness of God, it comes down to one commodity, and that commodity, commodity is faith. The people that believe release the sustaining commodity that is the presence of God. It is the light that enables us to see and not be overcome by the darkness. That's the reality. Now, I was in uh, Uganda I don't know, was it last year or the year before? Time sort of slipped away on us, hasn't it? We haven't, two years ago, my goodness, that's, uh, that's crazy. But anyway, we were ministering in a, uh, a refugee camp. Congo, as you know, and, or may not know, has experienced atrocious setbacks to their political, economic, social systems, civil war, destruction, murder, rape. I mean, just un- unbelievable things have come through that nation. And we're in this refugee camp, and we're talking to people who have, you know, experienced atrocities. And, and the thing that, that, that's so surprising is, is we've heard about these things all of our lives. How many of us have not heard you know, when I was a kid, I was talking about, they would, we'd call, talk about Biafrans, you know, and, and bi, the Biafrans would eat that lima bean because the Biafrans in Africa would, would, would love for this, you know, lima bean. And my retort was always, well, they can have it. You know, let's send them my leftover beans. I hate green lima beans. Um, you know, but this was the idea. We always heard, you know, there's suffering somewhere. There's, there's this over there and this over there. But we've always been insulated from it. Even with media today, the reality of those circumstances, there's a distance, there's a gap that, that causes us to maintain some ideas about the, the real conditions and the, 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 the circumstances that led to these atrocities. So there we are, though, in Uganda, talking to these women, these men who are scarred and broken and hurt and displaced and poor, and their doctors and their lawyers and their business people and their individuals who had a life 
who had a real life. They were, you know, we, we have this image of, well, they didn't really have much of a life anyway. No, I'm talking about a real life. Structures, they're not, you know, yeah, there are third world elements in some of these places, but a lot of these people had lives as good as yours today in terms of technology, in terms of healthy families, in terms of, you know, times of celebrating vacations and jobs and bonuses. And I mean, they had a life just like yours. And in a second, it was gone. In a moment, it disappeared, and they were on the run for their very lives. It's easy to think, well, you know, people are suffering, but they're not suffering like we would suffer if that happened to us. And so there's this sense that, uh, very unlikely that any of that could ever happen here. Very unlikely that uh, something atrocious like happened in Cambodia, you know, the killing fields with all these murders and the Civil War and the communist takeover, very unlikely. And, you know, for those of you who watched a movie like R- Rwanda Hotel, you think, you know, there, there, there must be some underlying condition within the people that disposes them to this kind of blatant blindness and rage that would result in this kind of thing. Surely, surely not we here in the West, surely we would never fall to such dire places. We would never lose our moral bearings such that these things would happen here. And I wonder, in the secrecy of our hearts, in those deep places, what is it, what presumptions, what judgments have we made about our superiority and their diminished capacity would make that plausible, plausible enough for us to be somewhat at rest, somewhat complacent about the advance of darkness in our own land because there is a stopgap that we really don't believe it could ever get this bad and certainly not this bad. And this is utterly impossible. And today, with the message I want to share, I want to strike at the heart of that proud, arrogant illusion that causes us to believe things that are simply not true. Why? Why would you do that, Mark? Why would you do that? Tell us the promises. Tell us the potential. Lift us up. I'm lifting you up by removing from you what's holding you down. There are weights that keep you in a low place in your life, and it's called pride. It's called arrogance. It's called unbelief. It's called hidden assumptions and beliefs in your heart. And they are the things that keep you from realizing the promises. Not how many times the pastor stands in front of you and pumps those promises. Your ability to walk in the promises of God begins with divesting yourself of the things that are repugnant to God, the things that God himself resists. Now, so anyway, sounds like preaching. We're in, uh, we're in Uganda, 
And I'm looking at these folks, and I'm thinking, what do I say to these people? I mean, you know, what do you say? How do you comfort people like this? I mean, I, I have no credentials. I have no uh, adequate sympathy. You know, sometimes when you're, you like to create bridges by, you know, I know how you feel. I have no idea how you feel. There's no possible way I can make any, you know, ties to your life. Your, your, your circumstances are beyond comprehension. And yet I'm here to tell you, and I'm, I'm feeling a little powerless. How do, because I'm thinking, how do I bring these people up out of the hopelessness? How do, how, because here's the thing. When, you, when this happens to a people, they feel powerless. They feel completely eviscerated of any autonomy whatsoever. Like, like and you're, what am I going to tell them? How am I going to provoke them to action with a confidence that anything they do is going to make any difference at all? Right? This is the powerlessness that comes over you when your life is scattered in a thousand different directions and you have no ability. So if I'm trying to get a people to call on God, because this is always the same equation. When a people are separated from God, when the full provision of God is not active in their life, you've got to provoke them into repentance. How do you get people who have suffered so much to begin to think about repentance when their minds are all on justice? Because we didn't do this. We didn't do the killing. We didn't do, though I wasn't the one who raped me. I wasn't the one who killed my eldest born son. I wasn't the one who uh, imprisoned my husband. But there is a, a plane on which things play out in the world of faith and faith and the laws of faith and the laws of the kingdom of heaven supersede every circumstance of the living. Let me tell you, these things apply to absolutely everybody. But my question is, how do I speak this in a way? Because I know there's something they can do. They serve a God. They're there worshiping, and there's a faithfulness, and there is a faith in them that's wonderful. And yet, you see, there's this blame, and there's this unforgiveness, and there's this bitterness that comes out of their pain. How do I get them to repent from that when so much injustice has been visited upon them. And the Lord gave me a word. And, uh, and I can't re- rehearse this word. I've actually shared it here before. But it's basically this, that what comes upon a nation, be it Congo or Canada or Guatemala or Mexico or Germany, is always the result of the aggregate activity of the land. God measures the hearts of a people in a land. And, uh, and so I, I wanted to communicate, at some level you participated in that which led, led to war. And you can go back to the scripture, you can go back to the message, but it's basically James, the end of James chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Where do wars come from? They come from your desire to have your willingness to resent your brother, to hate your brother, divide against your brother. That, that this, and this is what the Lord showed me. It's that a flood, where does a flood come from? A flood comes from one drop. 
One drop of rain falls, and then what? Another drop of rain falls, and then another and another. None of those drops in themselves create the flood, but the flood is the aggregate of all of those drops. So who becomes responsible for a flood of evil? Who becomes responsible for a flood of darkness upon the land? Every single person person that has contributed in adding one drop to that flood is responsible. But everybody, well, yeah, but I didn't add as many as them. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. And so there is, I call it the trickle-down effect. It's the trickle-down effect, and this is what James is trying to get across to the people that the overall atmosphere of the land is not just determined by a handful of people. It's determined by the bulk of people. And furthermore, and I don't have time to explain this principle, but when it comes to people of faith, one will put a 1,000 to flight, and two will put 10,000 to flight. That means there is an exponential capacity that people of righteousness have to create godliness, to create life, to be dispensers of peace. So I ask you this, righteous people, who is more responsible for the deluge of darkness? Those that have the ability to release one dimension or one layer or one portion of evil or those who can counter 10,000? Your power to, for, to, to delay, to repel darkness is many, many times greater than that of the unsaved. That's the responsibility we take on our shoulders when we can become sons of the kingdom, when he begins to show us the amazing weaponry that's available to us as the people of God. But if we, if we consider ourselves just like one of those normal people, I only have one vote, I am only one person. No, you're not. You have the authority of thousands of thousands. I could not begin to measure the potential just in this room of us, what we could do for this city and for this province if we believe the potential, and this is the promise, the potential for good is beyond the imagination. Your imagination. Can you see where we're going with this? Hallelujah. This is what, you know, being a son of God and a daughter of God is not just about going to heaven. It's about exercising the ability to rule and to reign with him right now. It's God saying to you, don't you realize that the weapons of the warfare of the kingdom of heaven are available to you and that there's a sufficient resource that nothing could overcome you if you're set your right, your heart right, if you set your life in a life 
alignment with me, if you actually turn, leave no stone unturned, leave no thought unchallenged, leave desire to have every little illusion of pride and arrogance poked and disturbed and upset and turned over in your life, the ability for you to pull the atmosphere of heaven down upon our community is endless. Is endless. If we believe. That's the condition. If we believe. If we believe. Father, I pray, God, that you would give us an ability to believe. Now, let me, on our way this, and you've heard me talk about this before, and it goes back to James chapter 3 and 4, but God resists the proud. God resists the proud. God resists the proud. <sighs> you think, well, that's not me. I, I believe in God. I'm dependent upon God. Yeah. Pride. What is pride? What is it? It is an illusion. It is a lie. It is a belief system. It is something, and as in, in a minute I'm going to talk about this, some of the greatest men, some of the heroes of the faith themselves struggled with pride even when they did not know it. And the journey and the testimony of their life was this, that despite the heights to which their faith took them, the limitations to their victories was always because of pride. And though God used them to change the course of a nation, he still dealt with them personally, trying to make them realize that if only you would align and deal with this secret arrogance in your heart that you don't even know you have, more is possible. More is possible if you begin to own those things that narrow the power of your influence, the things that limit you and I. I'm telling you, I, I just, I get so full of the sense of the possibilities that if the church of God could worship him in a way that he is truly worthy. The windows of heaven would open. And I know, again, it's always, it's always incremental. And we think, but I've experienced the windows of heaven open. I've experienced the blessing of God. I've experienced God's love and his forgiveness and his kindness. But I'm telling you that there are layers and measures of that that are beyond imagination. Beyond imagination. And everything you've experienced up to this point, you can imagine because you've seen it, you've tasted it, and you've experienced it. But God is saying, I want to unlock something for you and for the nations around you. Thank you, God. <sighs> I want you to turn to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, I'm going to go to that myself here, somewhere in the Old Testament. 
It's right before Second Kings. First Kings 19, you have this story of Elijah. And uh, I probably preempted the message when I shared with you about Elijah. But Elijah's had these great successes. He's, uh, he's, he's confronted Baal prophets on Mount Carmel. He's had a power confrontation, right? He said, listen, you call on your God, and the 400 Baal prophets called on their God. He said, I'm going to call on my God, and the God that answers by fire. You know, you know the whole thing. Jezebel wasn't there, but of course, God won. And uh, an amazing victory. And the prophets of Baal were annihilated in the land. And that is no small thing. That is no small accomplishments. But, you know, I remember when I first read this and I, I looked at, at, at Elijah. And Elijah begins to mock the Baal prophets. And I want you to know that mocking is never done in humility. You know, real mocking, real belittling. It comes always from superiority. It always comes from, and so he's mocking them, saying, maybe your God's gone to the bathroom. You know, he's saying things like this. And I remember as a young Christian reading that, and I thought, there was something in that whole thing that, uh, yeah, I'm not, you know, at first you think, oh, look at that. He's so bold. He's just, he's he's on top. He's winning. He's He's a, he's a leader here, but actually the flavor of that boasting seems after a while to be so contrary to humility. And of course, pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, it says this. Uh, I think this is the right one. No, 19, sorry, 19. It's after. 18 is where the victory of Carmel. 19 says, And Ahab told Jezebel, because Ahab was there, all that Elijah had done, also how he executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also to you, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. Okay, get this. We're on Mount Carmel. We're confronting uh, 400 prophets with knives and a despondent, divided people simply watching on. And I have the ability in this moment to see a manifestation of God that turns the heart of the nation, that causes the Baal religion to be decimated in the eyes of the people, and all of the Baal prophets are executed on the spot. But one woman from 20, 30 miles away sends a messenger with a warning, and suddenly Elijah crumbles You think, wow, what kind of witchcraft is she operating in that she could intimidate the prophet Elijah like that? I want to submit to you. It wasn't the power of her witchcraft that won that that battle that disheartened Elijah. It was the gap 
in his armor that was provided by pride because a fall is always preceded by pride. What made Elijah vulnerable to otherwise he was impregnable to a mindset of defeat. He knew that he knew that he knew who his God was. And yet one threat sends him reeling, despondent, fleeing for his very life. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. That's depression. And listen to this. And said, it is enough. I'm done. I'm finished. I can't do this anymore. You ever felt that? You ever felt in the wake of days of victory, having overcome so many things, to suddenly begin to feel like I can't go on another day? I'm quitting. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm done. I'm retreating from the front line. How is that possible? I want to tell you. Pride. Pride. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We, through the issues of our heart, through humility or pride, have the ability to repel the provision of God or invite it into our lives. And the tales and the stories of men and women down through history tell of both of these measures. Both of these things have been active in their lives because they too, like us, like me, like you, are on a personal journey. Despite what is, it is God is using them for in the nation in these great ways, they are still humans. They are still people with weaknesses. But look what he says. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. Look at the next words. These are instrumental. These are powerful words. For I am no better than my father's. I want to tell you those words are deeply significant because they are the evidence of a fissure in the armor of Elijah, underneath everything, underneath his faith, underneath his commitment to God, underneath his prayer, underneath his willingness to live a unique lifestyle of a prophet, a sojourning, uh, uh, a lone, lone wolf kind of prophet, there was a kind of an arrogance underneath all of that that secretly believed that he was superior than to anyone else that had ever lived, that he probably didn't even know it, but the, and you could see it in the tone of so many things, his, his, uh, his uh, intolerance of the weakness of others, his intolerance of what's the matter with you, that you, you could see the tone of it. And even there's one point where he's, he's accusing, he said, Lord, I alone am here standing for the glory of your name. And God rebukes him, and he says, I have 6,000 others. What is that? That is a rebuke. Who do you think you are? And this is the scenario God has with his people. He's like, I really want to use you, but I cannot tolerate arrogance. 
So how do I get what I need done and still live according to my ways? How do I honor the very precepts that emerge from my being that I have to, I must resist the proud? And yet everybody I use gets this inflated view of themselves. And so our lives become victories punctuated with low points. Not because, well, you know, you got to have down days. You don't have to have down days. You choose to have down days because the impulse of your heart is so self-satisfied, so disposed to thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, you just can't resist. And so like like an animal that God is training, blind and mindless on some level. He's saying, if you do this, you get a treat. If you don't do this, you don't get a treat. Well, surely we're more intelligent than that. Yes, but our hearts work by simple impulses. He said, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. You are in a journey where, yes, God wants to use us to save nations, but at the same time, he's dealing with us like he did with Elijah as individuals. And the question is, what is inside of us that makes us disposed to this kind of thinking? So let me review this. Elijah, the prophet, the God's premier representation on the earth, secretly in his heart was getting away for a period of time with an arrogant belief that he was greater than not just everybody who lived, but everybody who had lived before him. I am the greatest, he says. (laughs) Did you say that out loud, Elijah? No. Only in the quiet of my heart. Only in the whispers of secret places have I played with the drama of superiority where all the world kneels at my throne. We're not so disposed, though. We're better than that. (laughs) You wish. Are, is there a cure? Is there a balm in Gilead? Is there the means in God to train our hearts? Absolutely. Are we willing to take it? That's the question. Do we want to be trained? Or when he pokes our pride, do we become so suffocatingly uh, subjective and despondent and depressed that like, that's it, I'm done I'm I'm over I quit (laughs) I want to tell you I want to tell you what has enabled me to survive what has enabled me to survive is every moment where I have been at that place I never for a once believed the lie that I was not at fault What has saved me from utter destruction in those moments where the waves of darkness seem to 
blow over me with such force that I would want to retreat. I just know, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God cannot be defeated. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Therefore, ergo, I am operating in something else. This is how you can preach repentance to people who are broken. This is how you teach repentance to those who have been victimized. This is how you teach repentance to people who have suffered injustice. Not because they have not suffered all those things, but at some point, God has constructed the kingdom of God. That you have access to everything necessary for life and godliness so that we are without excuse. And if anybody wants to live in the tension of those realities, we can. We can. We can. We can. And I want to prophesy to you that the generation of Jacob that overcomes the world, the generation of Jacob that becomes and steps into the fullness of the image of Jesus as prophesied in Ephesians chapter 4, that generation will be undergirded by this reality. They will understand this clearly. And when the despondency and power and heaviness, the wake of darkness that would suppress them and cause them to lean back in self-pity saying it's not fair, it's not right, I deserve better. They'll rise up and they say, no, that, that very strain, that very wound-licking tendency where I would want all the world to come around me. And the proof that the church is really walking to humility is that they'll come around me and lick my wounds as well. But God is saying, listen, You have victory inside of you. It's at your fingertips. It's on the tip of your tongue. If you begin to say the right things in those moments of darkness. Now, we know what happened to to Elijah. And uh, God was merciful and God was gentle. But at the same time, God was brutal with him. I, I love a God who's a surgeon on my heart, who's not afraid to stick that scalpel deep. Do you want that? Father, we invite Holy Spirit. God, we, we want to say today that we know that there are uh, places in our heart that have been unvisited by the sword of the Spirit, by the sword of truth. And we say, God, bring your truth into those layers that are untouched, yet untouched, I pray in Jesus' name. Now I'm moving, moving towards an end, but I, I want to I read with you another scripture, Revelations 18. It's very interesting because the real, the real goal of God is is always to separate light from darkness. In your life, what he's doing is he's separating light from darkness. And he's saying to you here and there, uh, and, you can, and you can always know 
he, again, he's gentle, and I'm not going to be the one. When you're down and dirty and experience rejection, you know, I'm going to try to comfort you. But at some point, that's got to turn around. And gotta, I've got to say, you know. <laughs> but, the, you know, the question is, how quickly can God turn that around and say to you, you know, this was avoidable. He comforts you. Oh, you know, my little child, my precious, my wonderful. But you know, I've made provision for this. I love you. You are sweet, and I, I want no harm to come to you. But do you know this is your fault. What? <laughs> not your fault in that you have done more evil than others, but your fault because you have not taken advantage of the overwhelming power of victory that I've made available to you. We don't have to be victims. So he's trying to divide light from darkness. In in short, he's trying to get you out of Babylon and Babylon out of you. This is the work. And as he purifies us down through the generations of the church, there's going to become a generation of the church that is completely free of the power of Babylon. That's the reality that we're going towards. And I'm praying, believing, hoping that I'm a part of the generation that sees that fullness. But listen to this. I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures because it's just so good. Revelations 18. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. That's a glorious angel. The whole earth was illuminated by the glory of an angel. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Wow. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of her wrath and her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Let me make something clear. I'm not talking about us suddenly buying a plot of land 100 miles from nowhere and all gatherings in order to make sure that we're a sufficient distance from the darkness that is Babylon because I'm telling you the darkness of Babylon is not a geographic location it's not even a governmental system it's a spiritual commodity that infects the heart of men and women that's we're trying to become immune to that intrusive virus of selfishness and idolatry When we are immune to that, then we will walk with impunity through the streets of Babylon itself, and it will not come over us. It will not be able to infect us. Well, you know, I just need to have the right people around me because, because, you know, evil people can taint me. No, they can't, unless you let them. Now, does that mean you should just let whoever? No. No, because sometimes you're just not ready. And humility knows that. Okay, where were we? Revelations 18. And I heard another voice saying, Come out of her, 
In verse 5, For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she has... Now think about these scriptures. This is the, this is the stuff. Here's what I'm talking about. Are the attitudes that are in Babylon that make Babylon the pinnacle of obstinate evil and pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, are those things at all in us in any way? Are those things there? Well, yeah, but I lift my hands. I pray in church. I pray in tongues. I witness. I give money to the poor. doesn't matter. You should do all those things. But more than that, we need to get Babylon out of our hearts. In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously. Let me tell you, when, when, when Elijah, the great prophet, was entertaining pictures of supremacy, superiority, uniqueness, put him in a category of being a pure prophet, the voice of God, the herald of truth. None had ever lived before that were like him. He was better than all his fathers. Do you think any of that sounds like any of this? See, that's what God is looking for in us. Okay, I want to use you. Oh, that's great. Hallelujah. Let's go, God. Yeah, but I can't. Because there's something in you that I need to pull out first. Well, go ahead, Lord. Yeah, but I can't pull it out unless you know it's there. And you don't believe it's there. Because you can't ever really look in the mirror fully. So we're going to, over a period of time, look in the mirror occasionally, incrementally, on the heels of successes, as illusion and delusion and idolatry swells in your heart, will orchestrate moments of weakness where hopefully I can give you a glimpse of the reality that I already know that doesn't diminish my love for you, determine my destiny for you, but is a present reality I must deal with. Okay, then. Let's do this. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For, this is it, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. I want you to think about those words. I want you to think about those words relative to a substance that is in our nation, to a substance that is in the collective hearts of Canadians, Americans, Westerners in the civilization that we call the West. There is a certain kind of arrogance that says, I am immune. I am a queen. I will see no sorrow. Well, where does that materialize? I mean, that's what God has been trying to destroy in me for a long time. I don't think there's any left. Well, again, we have the power to change the course of our nation through our humility and our faith or add to the sorrows of this nation by not dealing with those things that are in our hearts. So here's what would happen. When, when we would talk about Nazi Germany, 
when we would talk about Cambodia, when we would talk about Rwanda or Congo or some of these places, there has always been this sense of intellectual superiority in the West. There's always been this sense of, yeah, but that'll never happen here. And it's never been because God is a life-giving Father who will keep us in humility and preserve us from any darkness coming here. It was always because, well, you know, no, we're sensible. No, we're, they're a little barbaric over there. You know, they, they do that kind of thing over there. They have a propensity towards these things that is not here because we're educated. We're, we're refined. We're, we're like domesticated animals. I mean, better than that. We are, we are superior. Let me, let me put something out here for you. The atrocities of Germany, which still to this day stand as this enigmatic moment in the history of Western civilization because, you know, we ascribe these things as possibilities to less refined peoples, but, I mean, these were educated people. This was the, you know, part of the pinnacle of civilized world where this took place. Well, you know, it was, it was lowly people. It was drug addicts and, you know, people who were already known to be evil. No, it wasn't. You know who it was? It was the intellectuals. It was the high academics. It was the leaders. It was the gifted. It was, it was the competent, top-drawer class of Germany that did this. It wasn't the uneducated. It wasn't the people who had trouble, you know, keeping alcoholism at a distance. It was the refined of the refined of the refined. And that's what is so troubling to the academic world of today is how do we categorize this anomaly that surely could never happen here? So here's my question. I'll try and close with this. Try. Where does it start? Where does it start? Where does that kind of darkness begin? How does it take root in a nation? How does how does evil thought murderous justification Take root in a people who are so civilized, so educated, so objective in their capacities, intellectually speaking. Well, I think that illusion is departing from us. This is what it says in Romans. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. Say all unrighteousness. You see, there comes a point when a people get what they're choosing. There comes a point where you exasperate the long-suffering in mercy of God, that God realizes the only way to show these people that they're not all that on the positive side is show them they're all that on the other side and that they are powerless 
to resist the waves of darkness. And we think, well, yeah, maybe for others, but not for me. Well, listen to this. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteousness of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve those who practice them. Point being this. Our ability to preserve our sanctity, our ability to preserve our our reasonable capacity for thought, goodwill, all of these things are not the product of our intelligence. They're not the product of our, 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 our education, our cultural upbringing, our surroundings, our, 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 our ascension as a culture. It is the product of one thing only. God breathed upon a believing people with a commodity that made them think straight. And he just as easily can retract it when a people are beyond redemption. And he must show them that left to their own devices, you are no better than your fathers. I pray to God. We as a nation in Canada would never do that. I pray to God because, you know, you think, well, yeah, but that's not us. What if we could turn the tide? What if we right in here, right in this room, what if a contingency of people so committed to the truth? So where does it begin? Let me just throw a little story and then I'll wrap this up for the fourth time. I dated a girl in uh, just out of high school. And anyway, I really thought I loved her. But she kept doing weird things. I couldn't get it. I couldn't understand it until many years later. But all of a sudden, she would, she would create this crisis in our relationship on nothing. And all of a sudden, angry, and then we wouldn't talk for a few days. Well, I was willing to talk, but like, what the, I don't know what your problem is. Anyway, and it was, it was nothing. It was always nothing. But I... I suddenly one day got an insight into her little social circle. And in her little social circle, she was the queen of drama. As the queen of drama in that, that world, she lived in a, in a soap opera kind of setting where the importance and the focus and the attention that w- could, you could draw from your friends was built upon the crisis you could fabricate, fabricate in your relationships. And so in order to be that proverbial center of the conversation, so her friends would go, oh, oh, that's terrible, how horrible. How are you and Mark doing? She had to destroy her emotional equilibrium in order to create this drama because drama Drama creates a sense of importance, a sense of excitement and otherwise dull and meaningless existence. And we've all seen that to some degree. And you think, well, yeah, yeah, but that's not real delusion. 
Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna stop knowing what reality is out of that. Or not. What if those little moments, what if, what if that multiplied by a million in our world, what if that little propensity to get pity, to get sympathy, to get self-importance, to be the, the center point of everybody's care was one of the pinnacles that was being tabulated right now, an accruing of each act, each thought was a numerical incremental increase in a commodity, in a, in a substance that we we're inviting into the world. Each time we believed for the sake of self-importance, a time, that's not really a lie. I'll never stop being reasonable. I always know truth from error. Really? Aren't we at a point right now where truth and error are completely subjective? I mean, when did somebody decide it was intelligent to say your truth might not be my truth, but it's still truth. Like these are intelligent people that say these things. These are educated people. These are people who seem to be, you know, have a grasp objectively on the world around them. And yet they are teetering on the edge of oblivion, losing the very basic ability. Why? Because it's not afforded by your intellect. It's not afforded by your education. It's not given to you by virtue of the culture that you were raised in. It is a gift from God. Sensible, straightforward, objective thinking, the ability to know the truth is a commodity that we need to guard above every other commodity today. And you think, well, yeah, sure, that it's badly needed out there. But I want to tell you, we are the priests. We are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. If there will be any light, it will be because we embraced it and we are emanating it. Not just in what you say, but in what your, heart's li- what your heart lives. See, the, in the heart, there's a capacity to bring light. And when you walk in the light and you step into a room, there are certain conversations that will not take place because they seem unsensible. Just because you're in the room. So let me ask you, how much light can you shed? What conversations, what twisted logic can you diffuse by simply being in the room? It's not contingent upon what you say you are. It's contingent upon how much light you're actually living. And this is the promise, and I'll stop right here. There's an immeasurable amount of light available to you and I. There's a power to, you know what, and, and it may come, there may come a point when you walk in the street at certain points, they'll, turn, they'll pick up stones to kill you. And if that's the case, so be it. And I say, great on you for having that much light. But it's not your breath or your BO, your bad attitude, and your poor personality that's causing you to reject, be rejected. It's the light. So, I just want to say, I want to pray. Worship team, why don't you come up? We've got a couple minutes here. We're going to sing one song. Uh, I want you to ask God.
Holy Spirit, how much of this is in my heart? I mean, if Elijah the prophet can have a secret sense of superiority such that he's looking down his nose at his fathers, he's looking down his nose at everybody else in the land, he's singling out himself as this amazing guy to the point that he's willing to accuse his fathers and he's willing to accuse 6,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. If the prophet of God, Elijah, can do that, Let's not imagine that some of that isn't at work inside of us. Because here's the thing. It's one thing to say, I want the light while you're tolerating darkness. And God is saying, listen, repent. Repent. There's a capacity for light that's going to be made available to a generation. It could be you. It could be us. It could be this church. Father, we don't want to be overblown in our estimations of ourselves. We don't want to be unreasonable in what we can expect is possible in this city, in this province, in this part of the world. God, could it be that you've appointed a people for such a time as this to rise up in humility and repentance and faith, to lay hold of something that can change the world? Oh, God, we want you to change the world beginning with us. (sighs) And I break the power of all false repentance. I break the power of self-pity. I break the power of self-loathing that pretends to be repentance. I break the power, I say, in Jesus' name, out of hope, out of promise, let a people arise that begin to imagine hearts so free from arrogance, so free from pride, so full of their destiny, the destiny of the promise of being sons of light, daughters of light. God, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we say, Lord, we are yours. We are yours.